newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation. If indeed you have tasted, the, the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whomever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, for the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offering. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for its own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as soldiers and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which will wage war against your soul. Keep the conduct of Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they see you as good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to the governors as soon by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put silence the ignorant of foolish people. Live as people are who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subjects to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it? You endure? But only if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justice. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. Amen. Great job, Josh. You can sit that down to Charlie. Great job. Great job. Amen and amen.
Uh, what a blessing to hear the word of the Lord. And so that is where we are going to be camping out this morning in First Peter chapter 2. Uh, Pastor Charlie kicked us off last week as we walked through uh, the book of First Peter. So we had a bit more time last week to talk about setting an audience. But if I could just draw your attention and remind you of uh, one of the major themes of the book is just uh, the overflowing grace of God. And it is grace that has a movement to it. Uh, the grace of God empowers his people to live live holy lives. And so uh, a major theme we're going to see continually uh, drawn out from 1 Peter is that uh, the people of God are called to live different, that there is a way that comes natural to us as people in a way that will be reflected in the world around us. But for the people of God, those who uh, claim to belong to Jesus Christ, we are called to live different. Uh, so now having um, done student ministry for about 12 years, a, a mark of getting older is that I have this uh, really great joy and privilege. More and more, I get to uh, marry off people that were once students in my ministry. It's a whole lot of fun, and it does feel like this weird uh, aging thing for me. And so uh, as an aspect of that, uh, a lot of times me and my wife, Emily, uh, we're getting more and more requests as uh, people ask me if I would do their wedding. We get to also sit down before wedding and uh, walk through some premarital counseling. So we get to meet with couples and um, help them get ready for that big day and really uh, to focus on preparing not just for a wedding, but to prepare for a marriage. And so uh, as an aspect of that, I usually give, you know, uh, some version of this talk that, you know, a big part of the premarital counseling process is realizing how much your families have affected you. Uh, so you come in with certain behaviors and certain attitudes and certain expectations that are very much family-driven. And so all of us have that, um, um, some in a positive way and some in a negative way. But there is this reality for, for that couple that we always talk about, like, hey, uh, it's good to recognize how your family has affected you and influenced you and what um, you're bringing into this marriage from your family. But there's this other reality that the two of you uh, get to decide and need to decide that like, hey, I know that is a part of my upbringing, but how are we going to be as a family? You are, um, have de are definitely a product of your parents and your family, but you are establishing this new family together and you need to make some decisions and have your own distinct flavor in your own distinct um, style as a couple and as a family as you move forward. You're still attached to the family of origin, but you're establishing this new family together. And in the same way, I, I feel like that's a, a very good analogy for us in what First uh, Peter is going to talk about right here in chapter 2, uh, that there are, there are these things in our upbringing and past that we need to recognize that are going to influence us, both our attitudes, our behaviors, our expectations, and that is a very much a part of us. But when Jesus rescued us and brought us into a saving relationship with God, we also entered this new family that although our family of origin continues to have an impact on who we are as a person, we have now jumped into this new family, this new arrangement, and these new expectations that God is saying, hey, if you are a child of God, there might be a way you used to live in the past, but now you are a part of my family, and there is going to come this new set of expectations, this new set of behaviors, these new set of ideas that come with following Jesus. And so I think that's a good reminder for us this morning to remember that we have been called into the family of God. And so there might have been a way we behaved or it might have been something that came natural to us. But when God calls us into his family, we embark in this new journey 
with him. In 2019, uh, Disney released their own streaming service as everybody has been doing. So Disney Plus came out in 2019. And I signed up for it for one reason and for one reason only, and it's called The Mandalorian. And so if you're not familiar with it, they started uh, putting out the ads really early that they were going to be adding on to the Star Wars universe. And I was excited for that. I was there for that. And so, um, you know, saw the trailers and I liked the look and feel and knew it was going to be following a, a single character, kind of the spinoff from the other Star Wars storylines. There's going to be this bounty hunter and he looked like Boba Fett. And I don't have enough time to describe who Boba Fett is to you. Um, I'm just uh, judging that you're people of the Lord and you will know already. Um, <laughs> And so, hey, uh, season one came out and I was pumped and they, were, they did that really annoying thing where they only released one episode a week and so they didn't release it all at the same time. But The Mandalorian came out and for me, it lived up to expectations. And so I really loved it. It was basically an old Western but set in space and so I'm all about that life. And so one of the things, you get to know this character, this, um, this bounty hunter who just goes by the name Mandalorian. But one of the things about it, it starts to build out this character and these ideas and who these people are. And so uh, you've seen some Mandalorians in Star Wars before, but you didn't know as much about them. But uh, so one of the things about this character is you, you get to the key on very quickly that he lives by this very specific code. That if there is something outside of his code, he's not going to do it. And if there is something that his code requires, he is all in 100%. So one of those things is he just never takes off his helmet. You don't see his face till the very end of the show, uh, season two. But um, uh, at different times in the show, he runs into another of his race, another Mandalorian. And they're marked by their armor, you can tell. And they speak this certain language and this certain code. You can tell they're relating to things that might be beyond some of the other people. But then when they say something that they're going to do, they follow it by this phrase, this is the way. And it's this marker throughout the show and it gives this imagery and it helps you um, um, figure out this character that there is a, a certain path he is on that he has committed his life to. And so that means some behaviors he's going to uh, avoid and some behaviors he's going to be all in on because this is the way. And so if you know much about our church history, and including in, in, in the book of Acts, that's actually um, a, a term that was used early on for Christians. They were called the way. Because there was a, a distinct way in which they lived their lives in honoring, pursuing God that was different than the people and culture around them. And so it was something that others called them because of the way that they lived their lives. They knew that those who followed Jesus, that the ones who were proclaiming the Messiah, they belonged to the way because there was something different about them, something unique about them, something uh, that offered itself to the world around them that was uh, in contrast to how people typically lived their lives. And I just want to remind us this morning that we also belong to the way. And as I've been reading through uh, chapter two of First Peter, um, it has um, pressed me in some ways and made me reflect on uh, our church family and our larger church family that doesn't just meet at Park Springs, but uh, uh, the body of Christ we belong to and how the word of God says that there should be a uniqueness to us that's like an aroma of life to some, an aroma of death to others. And um, I would say one of the things that burdens my heart is that at times when you look at the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, we don't look that different than the world around us. 
And so I think this morning is going to be a reminder to us that there is a way in which Jesus has called us to walk in a way in which Jesus has called us to conduct our affairs that's going to be different than our human inclination and also different than what the world might expect from us around us. And so uh, we're going to walk through the chapter. I'm so thankful for our, our, our two kiddos who already read it and just kind of primed the pump. And so we're going to take First uh, Peter 2 in some different chunks. And I do want to remind us, uh, chapter 1 already laid some groundwork. Um, this message, this letter that was written is to those who have received the word. So we've already kind of talked about the fact that people are within the body of Christ. So this is not as much about salvation. This is about um, the outworking of our salvation that is revealed in time through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so uh, that is coming off of chapter one, jump straight into it in chapter two. Uh, I'm going to reread some of these verses. So verse one says this, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn if infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so uh, very early on, Peter in this letter uh, starts to begin um, uh, illustrating some contrast between what might be our natural human inclination and the way God calls us to live. And so he gives us um, some practical examples of what it means to uh, be a part of following Jesus and how we're supposed to be distinct in this world. And so he has some things that we need to um, make sure our hearts are pointing away from. So he gives a list right there. He says, put away uh, all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Those are things that are not a part of the way we are supposed to live. But I think we can all recognize those are all things like I don't have to strive for. They just come naturally to me. You know, there are some uh, character attributes that I need to work on in my heart. Like, ooh, I really need to work on being more kind, more gracious. All of those things I can do just 100% if I try to. Those things come naturally to me as a person. And so what Peter is encouraging the church and how we should encourage our own hearts is that it's going to take um, a grace-driven, spirit-filled effort to put those things away. And so he continues to unpack that, and I love that he uh, contrasts it with, uh, you will be able to put those things away if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And I love how many just different images the Bible gets us, gives us about experiencing God. And so it does use this, uh, this literal taste, this, you know, this palatable um, experience if you've tasted that the Lord is good. And so I know like there are these human things that come naturally to us. 
You know, um, even just like having a two-year-old right now, some things that she is good at that she did not learn from me and Emily. Uh, one of those things is screaming when she does not get her way. Um, I don't think she observed that from us when I, you know, took something off of Emily's plate. Emily didn't turn around and scream at me. You know, that wasn't a learned behavior. It was innate in her humanness. And so, um, so he's contrasting it. He's like, hey, but if you've tasted that the Lord is good, and so if you have an experience with God, you know, I love how uh, the, the Apostle John puts it in 1 John 1, 5. He says, um, God is a God of light and in him is no darkness. And so we can recognize those human character traits that are easy for us, but I don't think any of us really like them. Like, I don't know if I asked you like, hey, how many of y'all wish y'all were more angry all the time? You know, hey, how, how many of you, like, would you rather be a bit more dishonest? No, we, we realize those things come easy to us, but we also know that we don't like them. And so I think that is one of those incredibly telling things that when we experience God in his goodness and that in him is no darkness, like we know those things are easy, but we also know those aren't the things we want to stray into. And so when we encounter a being that is all good, all holy, completely honest, completely faithful with us, we tasted that God is good, that makes us uh, want to strive to live within that realm and in that relationship with him. And so if we have tasted that the Lord is good, it's going to motivate our spirit to put away those natural fleshly in instincts that we have so that we can experience more and more of his goodness. And so that's what he is calling us to. This is the way. And then I love it. Continue, he just continues. There's so much in this chapter that we're going to have to, in some ways, rush through. In the next uh, little portion that we, we already read, uh, for myself, it led to two questions that I hope you can share with me. One, in verse 5, it talks about how God has called us. And then at the very end of verse 5, it says, um, He has called us to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so I, I've been asking myself the question this week, what is a spiritual sacrifice that's acceptable to God? And so if God is calling us away from certain things and towards other things, like we need to ask ourselves those questions. So that's what Peter is laying out for the church. And he says to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And I want to look at my own heart and my own life and ask that question. What is a spiritual sacrifice that is acceptable to God? That's one of the questions I had. But then as I read, and it gets into some Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. And it talks about how um, although he was rejected, he has become the foundation, the cornerstone that all of our life and faith is built on, and we in the same way are being included in that story, in that work of God. But it says for some, and it's interesting to me, that for some, that Jesus became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so, you know, we just have walked through the Gospels recently, and you just think about the way Jesus lived his life, that he was, you know, walking around, he was speaking truth, he was stepping on toes, but he was healing people and performing miracles. And you've got to ask yourself, like, why was the message of Jesus a stumbling stone? Like, why was it offensive to some people? And I, I think that could be a multifaceted answer, but I, I think these two things are connected where um, I'm asking the question, like, what is a spiritual sacrifice pleasing to God, and why was the message of Jesus offensive to some? You know, and what, what I've come up with as, as I've been dwelling on the scriptures, you know, you think about what uh, Jesus said about himself. In Matthew 20, 28, uh, Jesus said uh, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You know, and then also in, in John 15, 20, it tells us about us as followers of Jesus that a servant is no better than their master. And so we know that if Jesus 
The second person of the Trinity, the God of the universe contained in human flesh came and walked on this earth and he did not desire any position of a privilege but he came to be a servant to all and that if we are accepting the message of Jesus, that message uh, transcends to our life because we are not better than our master. In fact, we're supposed to go in the way of our master and what he did, we should also do and what he taught, we should follow and what he said, we should repeat. And so I think why uh, an aspect of why the message of Jesus was a stumbling block because it also pushes against my human notions of how I want to live my life. So do you know how I would like to be successful in this life? By being successful. You know, as I get older and I work longer, I want uh, my standard of living to go up. As I have, um, in some ways, maybe climbed the ladder within the church, there are some things that I just don't want to do anymore. And there's things I would rather hire somebody else to do. As I walk through life, my natural inclination is to be successful in a worldly standard, and that goes against what Jesus has taught us in his, world, in his word. The Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. And a servant is no better than his master. And so if you think about the setting when Jesus came onto the scene, uh, the people of Israel were an oppressed people. You know, they had their history, they had their heritage, they looked back to the golden days of King David and King Solomon where the rest of the world marveled at how wonderful Israel was and people came from afar to see the temple and to see the glory of Israel and that's what they want. And Jesus came on the scene and um, began to teach and people get, began to say, hey, this is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for who is going to save his people and he's going to restore the throne of David. And they had an image in their mind that say, said, hey, our position of privilege is coming back. And then when he said, hey, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake will save it. And hey, the temple is going to be destroyed, but in three days it's going to be rebuilt. And that was a, a stone of stumbling and a rock of a to the hearers at the time because Jesus came not to be served but to serve. And so if we were asking ourselves the question, what is a spiritual sacrifice that is pleasing to God through Jesus is to live like Jesus. Is to not seek a position of influence, not to um, strive to be in a place of privilege, but it is to come and to serve as he served. A servant is no better than his master. And if we are saying that our master is Jesus Christ, we need to serve the world around us. This is the way. And this is what it says about us, if you would continue on with me through the passage, verse 9. This is the people of God. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I love that passage. And I think it's one we have probably heard a lot of times and always resonates deep uh, within our souls, uh, talking about the people of God, what we belong to. But I just want to point out to you, because I know uh, just translation-wise into English, uh, I know certain words kind of conjure a certain image uh, into our own minds. And so when it says you're a holy nation, I just got to tell you, um, the kingdom we belong to is not an earthly kingdom. 
The kingdom of God is a heavenly, eternal kingdom that people enter into by relationship with Jesus Christ and the spirit of God comes into our lives. And so the kingdom of God is not ethnic. It is not political. It is not uh, geographically specific. The kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. And so when it says you are called to be a holy nation, it's saying that our primary citizenship, our primary identity has to be the kingdom of God and not any other earthly institution we belong to or have been born into. We have to have an identity that transcends that so that we can walk into the fullness of the promises he has actually called us to and live the life of servanthood that Jesus did and so that we can tell the world around us that there is something better than this earth can offer us when our citizenship is in heaven and not primarily in this earth. The kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. And it is so easy for us to begin to buy into the idea that there are uh, certain earthly institutions that have to be oriented uh, towards God for the kingdom of God to go forward, and it's just not true. So even right now, if you remember back at the beginning of of chapter 1, it says to the diaspora, it means uh, that the followers of Jesus, both Jews and also the Gentiles who begin to place their faith in Jesus, they're spread out all over these different regions and areas, and it listed some of those different ones. So it's not geographically uh, specific, you know, it has gone beyond just the Jewish people. Gentiles have begun to place their faith in Jesus, so it is not just an ethnic kingdom. It is um, the kingdom of those who have placed their faith in Jesus. That is what we belong to, and God has called us to live accordingly. This is the way. You are a holy people for his own possession. You are a priesthood. You are the ones that go before God, and that is your primary allegiance. And so at this time, when when Jesus was teaching, and even when uh, the apostles were teaching, uh, there was a couple of different movements happening throughout Israel. And so one of the ones we, we see a lot in the Gospels is uh, just the religious elite with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but one that's not talked as, about as much as referenced a little bit is, is the Zealots. And so at this time in Israel, being occupied by Rome, uh, there was a group of um, is Israelites who uh, had this notion that it was their duty before God to restore the physical kingdom of David, the is- Israelite kingdom, and overthrow the Roman occupation. And so what they did is they were militant. So they organized behind the scenes. They uh, caused um, uh, chaos for the Romans. They would not submit to the the yoke of Rome. They uh, killed people. They they took up the sword. And throughout the first century, they were just kind of a a a thorn in the side of the Romans because they were not going to submit to Roman authority because they viewed that the kingdom of God needed to be here and now, a physical, tangible kingdom with a human king set up over to overthrow these occupiers and establish it back here on earth. And Jesus does not validate their message. He's saying, hey, I've got something better for you. Better than this earthly kingdom, you can have a kingdom um, that you belong to, that uh, transcends time, that transcends border, that other kingdoms will come and go, but mine will last forever because all authority had been given to Jesus. And so we just need to remind ourselves that the kingdom we belong to is not earthly And we also need to ask ourselves the question, would some of us be happier if God was instituting an earthly kingdom? We need to reflect on that because it's going to motivate the priorities and the way we conduct ourselves in the world. If we would um, rather settle instead of a a transcendent, glorious, heavenly kingdom that we belong to, would we uh, settle for a, a country that just operated to my preference? Would that be more in line with our desires than the kingdom of God? You know, I love uh, verse 11 and 12. I've just 
kind of been thinking on because, you know, it, it continues to give this imagery that um, the, the earth is not our home. Um, this present reality is not what we're striving for. And so that's why he uses that image as sojourners and exiles that we, there should be an aspect of us that doesn't quite fit in to the world around us. We are distinct and different. And so verse 12 um, has really been convicting me. It says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Um, So probably my whole life, um, it has always really frustrated me anytime I've seen a Christian depicted in a movie or TV show. Because it always goes one of two ways. Um, One, they're just the biggest legalistic jerk you could ever imagine just constantly condemning and uh, giving some Christian side eye and some snark towards people about those sinners. And so that's one way we get depicted. Uh, But then the other way is just a complete hypocrite. So uh, none of the moral standards that we would teach are present. You know, they look just like the world and just say they're Christian. So it's always just kind of frustrated me. It's like, why can't you just have a normal Christian? Um, and so there's this uh, instinct within me uh, that kind of just gets like uh, uh, this kind of like salty attitude of we're just misunderstood and they just don't know. What verse 12 tells me right here is that if the outside world has a misrepresentation about who I am or what we're about as Christians, it's my job through my conduct and through my love to correct their understanding so that they would see my Father who is in heaven and praise him because of the way I'm living my life. I think we have this instinct to just kind of cloister and just just like, okay, we're misunderstood. It's whatever. Y'all do y'all's thing. We're going to do our thing. No, that is not the way. God calls us to be salt and light in a world that needs to know about him. And so this is what Peter is telling this church in the first century, that we need to live an outward expression of our life, that regardless of how we might be slandered, it is our duty to correct that understanding, not by telling people every time they're wrong, but through our love and conduct that should be distinct and different than the way the world operates around us. And so I love in verse 11 that it says um, that these fleshly instincts are going to wage war against our souls. So all of those things listed in verse 1 that are very natural for me to fall into, into slander, into envy, into enmity, those things are going to do damage to my soul, even if that is my uh, natural instinct when the world uh, says things about me that I don't think are true or I feel misrepresented, um, instead of falling into that, I can take that as an opportunity like, no, I'm going to go above and beyond to prove to people how uh, significant and how magnificent the love of Jesus is through my conduct that you can say whatever you want about me. I'm just going to continue to love you and graciously operate in the world around me because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. This is the way. And we're supposed to win people over in certain ways. And so now what what Peter does, and it goes into chapter 3, so we're not going to get all of it today, but he starts to give some areas of life that we have to operate in. And he's going to unpack in different ways how our conduct should be distinct, should be different than maybe what would be natural in the world. And through that, we're going to give glory to God. And so he he picks three categories that he's going to walk through. So one is governmentally. How do we operate as citizens of heaven when we belong to also earthly kingdoms in citizenship? So how are we supposed to operate in the political realm? 
And then he talks about our work. He talks about servants and masters. How should we operate in that workspace that is different and distinct than the world around us? And then in chapter 3, it goes into our households. Husbands, how should you operate? Wives, how should you operate? How is it supposed to be different than what might be our human instinct and also what might be different than the world around us? But we're going to get into uh, the political realm and also the work realm. Uh, So read with me uh, verse 13 through 17. This is what it says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I think the key phrase for us in understanding this is going to be in verse 13. It says, for the Lord's sake. I know so often um, I want to base my obedience to God on how other people operate. So think about this in, in terms of forgiveness. I know theologically and intellectually I need to forgive people because Jesus has forgiven me. But how I operate on just a normal everyday level is I will forgive someone if they are sorry and if they ask for forgiveness. And other than that, that's on them. And so I I think we probably have recognized that tension at different points. But I, I feel like one of the things we have lost that is hurting our witness in the world is that we take that same mentality over into the public square. And so right here it says, uh, submit to the ruling authorities over you. It says, honor the emperor. And um, we have not, I I don't think, done a great job of taking uh, this position of submission into uh, the world around us when it comes to what happens politically. You know, I, I feel like just as people, we've gotten a lot more obstinate. And so I think a lot of times we want to make it contingent on whoever we view as the other side. Like, okay, well, I'll play nice if they do. Or uh, I, I will not slander if they don't slander. When we do this whataboutism with whoever we view as our political opponents, and let me just tell you, that's not the way of God. That is not what Peter is encouraging the church in the first century to do. And let me tell you, they are facing a worse political situation than any of us could ever imagine. He literally says right here, honor the emperor. It's Nero. Nero was a psychopath. Like he literally uh, begins uh, burning Christians alive to light up his dinner parties. And so what Peter is doing right here is he's uh, establishing, I believe, um, continuing to set apart what it means to be a citizen of heaven versus having a primary citizenship here on the earth. You know, uh, governments are going to do those things, and we should submit to human institutions as to the Lord because it is a way we can live distinctly in the world around us. But our primary citizenship is in heaven, and so our primary concern in this world is the proclamation of the message of Jesus Christ and not necessarily what happens in the political realm. That doesn't mean we can't be politically active, but it establishes a hierarchy of our priorities of where our focus and our eyes should be, that the government's supposed to do its thing as instituted by God, and God's going to work out um, who he allows into those, into those positions or not. But as for me, my, my eyes are heavenward, and I'm much more worried about um, declaring the goodness of God to the world around me through my conduct versus what happens politically. So we always want to make it this whataboutism. You know, what about this? What about that? We are to submit to earthly authorities because of the Lord. 
So not if they are doing all the things we want them to do, not even um, in, in this regard. You know, I, I, I think you would make a, have a hard time trying to say that all of the laws of Rome were moral. And we have this wonderfully rich history of where Christians cannot, um, 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 lost my word, when we cannot engage in what the culture is doing, we say no and we don't. But it, if, it, if it is not something biblical, if it is just something preferential, one of the ways we are to live distinct and to show off the goodness of God is to not uh, be so focus on the things of this earth that we forget uh, the position we have in Christ and how we are to operate in the world around us. And the same thing happens in our work. So he talks about it right there. He's, he, he, two categories, servants and masters, and we could just talk about it as employees or if you were an employer. You're supposed to honor them as to the Lord. So whatever our position, whatever the situation, whatever your dumb boss did this week, how God calls us to operate in this world is in three ways. He calls it one of submission, one of servanthood, and one of suffering. That's what we see in the political realm, in the work realm. Submission, servanthood, and suffering. And that's going to push against all of us because all of us want positions of significance and safety. And so we have to realize that Jesus is calling us to live differently and the grace of God is going to motivate and empower us to do that because we want our position, we want our significance, and we want our safety. But that's not how Jesus lived on this life. And so why would we think as servants of the Most High God that our position is going to be any better or any more fulfilling if we actually got all of those things that we wanted? I love how it explains this to us in verse 22, or 21 and 22. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What an incredible statement. You know, it says just so clearly that we, we're going we're gonna to win the world around us by doing good, not by being the largest voting block. You know, and so I love that in, in chapter one, you know, there's different questions about uh, the audience this letter is written to, but more than likely it was both a mix of, of both Jewish converts and also Gentile converts. So some people who had been brought up in Judaism, but some people who had not and had just come to faith in Jesus. And so I love in chapter one, um, even for those who were not brought up in Judaism, it connects them to the promises found in the Old Testament. It talks about what the prophets laid out and that they're getting to live in and walk in. And so uh, I, I love the way that it does that. And I think we need to make sure we do that for ourselves as well. Uh, we are not a, a standalone people at a standalone point in history. We, we are a, a part of this great grand narrative of what God is doing in the world. And so we get to kind of look back through history and how God has done his work through his people. And we get to attach ourselves to that same legacy. And so although um, this letter was not written specifically, to us, it is written 
before us and we get to um, look at how uh, the church received this letter and how it motivated them to live out their lives in an adverse setting in the world around them. And so I, I really love if you look at the first century history of the church. And so it was, like I said, um, probably none of us are going to experience a, a more a negative setting for trying to live for Jesus. I mean, you could be killed for just about anything. Like Rome was not conducive to godliness, not just the legality issues, but also just the moral debauchery, like not living the way they lived would have made you stand out. And so I, I love that we get this history of the church that, um, you know, uh, like I said, Jesus didn't um, uh, validate uh, the zealots' position and how they were going to overtake or overthrow the Romans by force. And, you know, he didn't validate the Sadducees and Pharisees that just used their um, religious uh, position to establish for themselves power and prestige. But no, he worked through the least of these he called fishermen to himself. And then those in turn went to who any, anybody that had ears to hear, let them hear. And so what we get in this first century is this incredible movement of the gospel, which is a, should also be a, an incredible reminder to us that we don't need political force as Christians to accomplish the will of God. Like what we need is hearts sold out for Jesus Christ and to live differently than the world. Because when our hope is set on him, it's going to cause people to wonder why we're not freaked out about everything going on around us. And so let me tell you, like what's going on currently in our country, it stresses me out. You know, I worry about those things. You know, I worry about what's going to happen if inflation just goes through the roof. You know, I worry about what's happening with China and with Russia and these different um, situations. I worry about what's happening at the border and the humanitarian crisis going on. I worry about these things. But I also know that God has made his church for these moments. I pulled this quote. I love it. It's, 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 not, it's not from biblical writings. It's actually from a, from a Roman emperor in the 4th century named Emperor Julian. And this is what he had to say about Christians. Uh, and just so you know, he uses the term uh, atheist. Because Christians only honoring one God in the eyes of the Romans who had thousands of gods, they considered them atheists for only having one. So they called them the atheists. And so this is what Emperor Julian said about Christians. Atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers, through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. We belong to the family that slowly won over the most significant empire in history, not through force of arms, not through political means, not through positions of influence, but because they love the poor. For 350 years, Christians were killed, Christians were locked in jail, Christians were ridiculed until there were more Christians than, than there were people left on the outside of the faith. Not through political position, not through positions of influence, but because they followed the way of Jesus. And my fear as a pastor is so often we equate either the blessing or curse of God with what happens every election cycle, and that's not something I see in the Bible. The kingdom of God is going to go forward. And we can look at the world today. Two biggest places that Christianity is exploding is China and Iran. I don't think that's because there's a, a Christian government in power. 
It's because I think people are sold out with the message of Jesus and they are living distinct lives where they care and love for others in a way that shows that their hope is not in this world, but is in Jesus Christ. I love what it says in the book of Revelation when it talks about defeating the enemy of our souls. It says uh, that the saints will overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, not by being the largest voting bloc. And so we have to ask ourselves if we are living distinctly in the world around us or do we need to go back to the first verse of this chapter and we need to um, um, examine our lives and ask the Lord above if we need to repent from falling into enmity and malice and hypocrisy if we say our hope is in Jesus but we're also really banking on the house and the Senate getting flipped in 22. And I hope those things happen, but that's not where my hope is. And so I love how this chapter wraps up because it is so in keeping with our Savior. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And I would just put the invitation to you this morning, if there are um, attitudes or behaviors or mindsets you have strayed into that honestly, I would guess, are just stressing you out. And I love how it lays out the example of Jesus. When he was reviled, did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to God. And I pray that that would be a marker of us as the people of God, that we would return to the overseers of our souls and not give way to those natural human inclinations of we are going to do in kind the way we have been treated. But if we are reviled, we are going to exude love because of Jesus. And so I would just invite you to reflect on your own life this morning. Maybe there's some repentance that needs to happen. Maybe we have placed our faith in lesser things than the God of this universe. Maybe we are counting on certain um, temporal situations to be lined up before we treat others with kindness. Maybe we've been reviling because we feel like we've been reviled. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And that goes today for ourselves and that goes for the world around us that is watching to see how Christians respond as things seem more and more chaotic every single year. Are we going to place our hope in Jesus or are we going to continue to cling so tightly to our places of position and influence? So just remember that a right relationship with our Creator will be more satisfying for your soul than any political situation that could ever occur on this earth. Would you pray with me?